to episode 310 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley, Jessica Carr, Cam Watson. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1966's Tokyo Drifter. Um, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week and momali i'm gonna kick it off with you sure so i saw a movie called color out of space which i guess came out last year um starring nicholas cage uh it's an adaptation of a hp lovecraft short story which is about like this meteorite landing on planet earth and there's like a color that comes out of it that's like indescribable like in human beings have never seen it and it like causes people to go insane like very lovecraftian um, and so this is like a movie adaptation of that, um, directed by Richard Stanley. And I think, is this the first movie he's done since like the Island of Dr. Moreau disaster in the nineties? Anyway, he's kind of notoriously involved with like a notoriously disastrous movie called the Island of Dr. Moreau. And I think this is his comeback movie and I thought it was good. Um, I was talking with you guys before we started recording and apparently a lot of people did not think it was good. So um but it i thought it's it's good everybody else is wrong um i mean the the big problem is how do you you know with adapting that short story is like how do you make a color that human beings have never seen before if you yourself are a human being aka richard stanley and his special effects department um and the answer is you don't you just make it pink um and that's fine because the movie's not really about like how incomprehensibly like colored the meteorite is um what it basically is more about is uh like a kind of weird like lopsided or not lopsided like cockeyed um like environmental apocalypse basically um so nicholas cage is like a ex-hippie i guess they like make a lot of allusions to his hippie days and that he may have fried his brain on acid or something um and he's living with his family, which involves um, his wife, who is played by Jolie Richardson, I think. Um, and then his two kids. Um, and the movie opens uh, with like this um, surveyor coming to uh, check out the water table on his land. Because um, he's living out in the middle of nowhere his family uh, farming alpacas, um, which hit close to home because I have some relatives in New Jersey who have an alpaca farm. Uh, so right there, I was already riveted because um, I've never actually seen alpaca representation in a film before. Um, and uh, <laughs> It's good that we've got to that point now. Yeah, I mean, society has progressed enough that we have space for everybody, including the alpaca farmers. Although I will say my um, New Jersey relatives uh, had a detail... Um, or there's a detail I noticed about um, my New Jersey relatives farm that is not replicated in this, which is that they have llamas amongst the alpacas because llamas are bigger than alpacas. And so the llamas will protect the alpacas thinking that they're they're young or something like that. Um, and so maybe if Nicolas Cage had invested in a few llamas to protect his pack in the Colorado space, things would have turned out better for him. But um, he didn't. Um, and what ends up happening is... Um, like I said, there's a there's a surveyor who comes at the beginning of the movie, and um, there's going to be some big industrial project that like the government is doing uh, near their land. They're going to build like some big factory. I'm not sure if it's like hydroelectric 
um, or something like that. But you get the impression that there's like some eminent domain situation going on uh, so that they can like industrialize this like rural part. Um, and um, that becomes important not really for the plot. That, that kind of stays in the fringes, but I think for the big theme of the movie. So like not long after that, that meteor from the short story hits uh, and everyone starts to go crazy, but they go crazy specifically in that, like the water starts uh, to be their water starts to be nasty and and hurt them, um, and their bodies undergo like these really grotesque mutilations, including like these kind of like cancerous tumors. And then at one point, like two people fuse together, and there's some like really gross like body horror stuff. Um, and then by the end of the movie, like I don't know if this is really a spoiler. It seems like the only direction the movie could go, but like the whole land is like decimated, like literally just like ash and gray by this like alien force. And like, I mean, it's pretty gross and weird regardless of like whatever's going on under the hood of this movie. But I really thought it was a pretty compelling use of like this kind of science fiction concept to explore like how like rural communities get exploited and get like, you know, uh, you know, they're, the kind of purity of their experience gets like corrupted by uh, pollutants that you know larger industrial product projects don't really um, spend much time imagining the repercussions of it. It kind of reminded me of Dark Waters from last year, like with Mark Ruffalo. Um, it has a lot of the same ideas about like how larger forces a lot of times have rural communities as collateral damage for their giant um, industrial projects, um, but. I mean, I, I can understand why people might not all, like, 100% be behind this movie. I mean, Nicolas Cage is, like, from the get-go doing a really, like, you know, when people talk about Nicolas Cage performances, he's doing one of those, like, from the get-go, like, before he's supposed to be, you know, kind of losing his mind. And um, that's, like, a weird sit with the movie. I mean, I think it was fine and interesting and kind of, like, charming and goofy, but I can see it's, like, a distraction. Um the special effects at first are pretty, like, um, they're not great. Uh, I think by the end when it be, the movie becomes, like, almost, like, 90% special effects, it looks a lot better because there's a lot less to compare it with. Um, and some of the imagery towards the end of the movie is really interesting um, and kind of otherworldly and, and horrific. But um, special effects maybe at the beginning could have been better. But generally, I liked it. Um, did you guys see it and not like it, or were you telling me that other people hadn't liked it when you guys were telling me that this movie wasn't well regarded earlier? Yeah, that was our that was our cruel joke. Is we we all loved it, but we wanted to tell you that we didn't like it, so then you felt left out. Um, oh well. No, I remember um, Zach. Didn't you and Andrew go see this for your midnight movie? We did. We went and saw this. Yeah. yeah, we saw it at TIFF last year as one of the midnight movies. And it's funny that you mentioned that it's like, I think we talked about this when we discussed the movie at TIFF, but um, it's it was like, so there's already a, a degree of person that is showing up for a midnight movie at TIFF. You know, it's they're usually kind of, some off the wall stuff, some transgressive stuff, you know, it's supposed to be kind of fun. Um, and so everybody was geared up for this one because like they weren't even hiding that it's Nick cage and he's going to be doing his Nick cage thing. And like people were, you know, you could probably be selling like, like, like foam fingers and stuff for people who were so excited to see Nick cage do Nick cage stuff. Um, 
and I don't know. To me, like that's fine, but it also felt like I don't know. There, there was a part of me that was like it, the the self awareness that he's doing a weird performance seems odd. Um, like, and then and then you mentioned the the special effects, um, and I, I don't think they were bad, but they just kind of had like this this kind of falseness to him that reminds me of a lot of the revival era Doctor Who episodes, which kind of has like this, it's supposed to feel kind of new agey, but also or, or more modern in terms of like the CGI effects, but also just kind of has like this um, hokey quality to it to still kind of remind you that this is not something that's happening within this reality space, which I guess is kind of the point of color out of space. But at the same time, it, it really felt like it was kind of, to me, doing like a bit the entire time. And so I never really, like, I don't, I don't, I don't rem- really remember, like, jumping in and, and really kind of enjoying what it was doing because it always felt like it was, it felt very winky. You know, it was like winking at the camera, like, we know what we're doing. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not fun. Do you think, I mean, do you think that might have been a product of, like, seeing it with a bunch of people who were kind of cheering on wacky Nicolas Cage? Probably. That that usually does a number on it. Um, I'll be honest. You I know, will say about the special that's, effects, that's, since I, it was brought up again, like, the, the pink, like, you know, the pink, like, color out of space itself, I think, always looks kind of weird. But I, I thought the body horror stuff actually was pretty, pretty solid. As far as like, you know, kind of grotesque, like serious special effects go. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was fine. I, I, I know that Andrew, I, I believe he talked about this after because he had read the book and then we went and saw the movie. Um, and it's kind of a difficult, like, at least in his description, like the way it's described in the book, it's effective because you don't really have like a visual of what this is and so like that lack of definition makes it like enhances kind of the experience because you you really have no shorthand for what you're you're dealing with and that kind of makes it more terrifying and and, the, and because it's a movie and you have to show something you know somewhat visually um you know a lot of that punch was taken out of it because they kind of have to go with the whole like discoloration or whatever and it just doesn't i guess it just did at least in his opinion if i'm remembering correctly it didn't have the same impact um you know within the movie form yeah i mean it's definitely different and that's like the problem with like all of well most of adapting lovecraft is that like his like you know specific brand of horror is about like the incomprehensible um and that's a lot easier to get away with in text because you can um uh, you know, kind of slide around the visual details. Um, but in a movie, that's, like, virtually impossible without just, like, doing something avant-garde or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. I, is it is it streaming? It's streaming now? Uh, I have no idea. I got the DVD from Netflix because I do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the last man doing that. Yeah, first in line for all of them. <laughs> well, I believe it's streaming in places, but if you're also like Michael, you can rent it from your local Netflix DVD rental box. I'm sure. I'm sure it's like on like 
iTunes or Amazon or something like no? that. No? If it has a DVD release. I don't think so. I think it's just yeah. available for Netflix DVD subscribers. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a direct-to-Netflix DVD original, you're right. <laughs> They're pivoting to a whole different direction. Um, cool. Uh, well, Jessica, you and Cam caught a movie that is not in any way affiliated with the Kelly Reichardt movie of the same name. <laughs> yeah, so we had a chance to watch Night Moves. I've been pacing myself until it is time to watch First Cow. So, um, Cam, you want to give like a description of what the movie's about? Uh, sure. Um, so, Night Moves, Kelly Reichardt movie, it's uh, pretty much like a heist movie, essentially, uh, revolves around um, three like eco terrorists. Um, and uh, it, it centers mostly around um, Jesse Eisenberg, who kind of plays like the main character. Uh, but these these three people uh, are kind of like winding up to uh, to um, do some kind of like big direct action. Uh, and as the thing kind of carries on, you you learn that what they're they're doing is essentially like getting all the stuff together to blow up uh, a dam. Uh, a hydroelectric dam and then uh, that happens about midway through the movie uh, and then the rest of the movie is kind of like uh, it, it really after the midpoint there it like really moves to being like centered mainly around Jesse Eisenberg's character and uh, it just kind of like deals with the sort of like spinning out of control that happens to his life following the the action and kind of his his kind of like descent into like paranoia, but also like uh, a feeling of lack of efficacy following it and stuff like that. It's not like a hugely eventful movie. It kind of has like, um, it kind of has like the lead up to the big thing. And then it's sort of rather than doing a thing where normally, you know, a movie would kind of like wind up to a big, the big blow up the dam part. It kind of like gets to that, does it. And then like everything after that is sort of like a falling out and seeing like what happens afterward uh and um yeah i don't know is there anything that i would i missed in that no that's right and it has like it has kelly reichardt's like classic pacing of nothing like nothing seems urgent really but there but what is different from her other movies like it's a very slow paced film but like what is different is that there is this like tension underneath like mm. this boiling that is underneath that you can see within all the characters specifically jesse eisenberg and like these are people who are angry like they're angry because like the earth is falling apart and we're using all of its resources and nobody's doing anything about it and so they're thinking like well if we do this small thing like blow up the dam, then we're making a statement telling people like all of these small things can lead up to us making change, which like there are, I think like the main thesis of the film is presenting like, okay, so what do we do about climate change? Do we do all of these small things to get to this big thing? Or do we like invest more in like local farming and like do it the other way? And I, I think that she's presenting both of these ideas and the, so like in the end, like Jesse Eisenberg's character unravels and you start to see the other two characters also unravel. And so it kind of seems like she's saying, well, like maybe this 
like violent action like isn't the answer and um it's really it's really interesting because like most people i kind of like dislike jesse eisenberg but it's really hard to say that he like doesn't do a great job in this movie he plays a character who seems like his insides are just coming apart like his eye twitches a lot he like rubs his eyebrow like he's stressed out and then after they blow the dam up he's just progressively getting these like ticks and it was really funny because there's a scene where he's at a farmer's market and he looks like he's <laughs> about to murder somebody <laughs> like it's guy in a ball cap who's just selling radishes and he looks like he's about to kill somebody and um just like the way the characters written are really good um and andrew had made a point that like this is kind of like kelly reichardt doing a thriller Mm. film and i enjoyed it a lot like there i have this thing with her where i have a hard time relating and connecting to her characters because a lot of her films are about isolation and also like how people can be connected to nature but not to other people but like this is an example of where like something where that works because they're they're isolated but they're joined because they all believe in this one cause but they're also just isolated because of their personalities and so i still think that it worked Mm -hmm. yeah and like with the with the um like the kind of togetherness and isolation thing too like the three characters even even after the dam blows up and the and the movie does kind of like shift its focus more specifically onto like jesse eisenberg's character you do get lots of like there is lots of like weird co co uh like cohesion between the characters And it's like, rather than being isolated together in the way of like, we have a common goal. It's like, we all have a common thing that we did that maybe we shouldn't have done. And so they have kind of this like collective uh, uh, doubt uh, about what they did uh, in some instances. And then uh, they all, like the three of them kind of choose to go about it, um, coping with that in different ways. And that's kind of what makes the movie like interesting in the second half. But like to the to the point that you made about like it being more tense uh, and having that kind of like undercurrent of tension uh, in it, there is also kind of just like the part in the mid middle of the movie, like when they're actually going to the dam, where it's actually just like a straight up tense movie, mm-hmm. like where it is very like high strung and very like uh, it feels very like erratic and like something could go wrong and yada yada yada, which is is, is kind of like different from. Uh, like the Kelly Reichardt movies that I have seen anyway, where it's sort of just like this overarching like mood that settles onto the whole movie. And while that is there in this one, I do think that it has kind of like a higher peak of, of like um, of just like um, traditional tension than like some of her other stuff that would have just like a higher, like emotional peak or something. Yeah. And you, you don't even get to see the damn explode. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, <laughs> crazy about it is like all building up to this moment and then it's just the three of them driving away and the camera is just facing like them as they're driving away in the truck and you just kind of hear a pop pop noise and you're like oh i guess that was it but then it just like ruins all of their lives (laughs) like and it 
it kind of reminds me of just like someone screaming into a pillow. Like it's like this muffled, this muffled like tension that is boiling over and there really is no release. Like it's, it's really crazy. Just imagine Jesse Eisenberg's eye just twitching for an entire movie. (laughs) Jesse Eisenberg doesn't seem like somebody who would be handling this pandemic very well. (laughs) <laughs> just in general um to your to your comment about uh you know experiencing kelly reichardt's work um so does that mean like we're not gonna have a an old joy <laughs> discussion right now i i will say that i am willing to rewatch old joy once i get to watch first cow so, <laughs> everybody knows that I love food and I love food movies and this guy's name is Cookie and he makes he makes little cakes from a cute cow's milk. So <laughs> this is my this is my movie. I have I've been waiting to give it to myself as a treat. Like I've had I've had all of these like stressful films to watch. Like I knew I had to watch Bad Girls Go to Hell, which just has a lot of sexual assault in it. And so I was like I need to sprinkle in like good movies in with all of these like very tense, very anxiety ridden films. So, uh, have I think both of you guys have seen uh, Michael and Zach? Both of you guys have seen Night Moves as well, right? Yeah, we talked about it on the um, on the podcast for our Kelly Reichardt series, but it, it's the one that I probably remember the least. Even though I, that doesn't mean I dislike it, so. Um... I don't know, hearing you you all talk about it, I probably should revisit it at some point. Yeah, it was only the second one of her movies that I had watched, and I saw Meek's Cutoff first. I was like, wow, that was great. And then I watched Night Moves, which is also good, but I was thrown off because it, it it's a completely different vibe from Meek's Cutoff. Um, and um, I liked it. What, it. what it struck me as is the time at the time without having seen more Kelly Reichardt movies is that kind of style of indie movie where it's like a genre deconstruction so i like was like well that was kind of like a like a um eco thriller or something like that with with all the like um catharsis taken of it or with all without all the action for the most part um that was sort of my response at the time i would probably view it differently now that i kind of am more familiar with her work um but um it's been several years since i saw it no it's it's definitely one um I think I remember specifically just uh, I remember Jesse Eisenberg's performance and Peter Sarsgaard's performance. Um, is it Dakota Fanning is the is the female lead? Yeah. Um, so no, that's the one that I probably remember the least, but would probably like to to rewatch it just because I feel like it's probably it seems to be a little bit of an outlier in her in her work. So. I've seen a few of her movies now and that I was kind of like, oh, I want to see it because I thought I think that the subject matter is interesting. Uh, And I I wasn't like disappointed by it at all. But I do see how if it was like um, if you were just now coming into her movies and especially if you were coming into her movies with the like mindset of like I'm going through a director's filmography and you like saw it early or especially like right in the wake of Meek's cutoff or something like you mentioned, Michael, uh, I could see how it would be kind of like 
it would it would be a little like slippery um but i do think that like i think that it's i think that it's really really good i i thought that it uh i thought that it worked really well and um i thought that like um that it had elements of that like sort of deconstructive indie movie like you mentioned but i think that it also had some like more stuff to say about uh like climate crisis and the way that we sort of interact with that on an individual level. And I think that that's really like important. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the reasons I would like to revisit it because I agree. It's not, I would not recommend night moves as like, Oh, you want to watch some Kelly Reichardt movies? Well, let's start with night moves. Like that's a terrible way to kick it off. Um, but I think, I think after re- like watching all of her stuff and then kind of rewatching a few of them, um, I think I'm a little bit on a better wavelength with like what kind of what she's trying to accomplish with kind of her political statements throughout her, her movies. Um, you know, I, on the rewatch of old joy, I really kind of, I really, really vibed with, um, you know, what it's saying through that, uh, through that story. And so as I, as I kind of go through, you know, revisit a lot of her stuff, I think it'd be worth revisiting night moves and kind of engaging with that, with with that one on on the kind of the political spectrum that she works on because it seems to be um probably the most explicitly political movie i think all of our movies are pretty political but um this one seems to be like the most explicitly so um is night move streaming yes uh we watched it on amazon prime cool yeah all right. Well, I'm gonna dumb down the conversation for <laughs> like five minutes. So if you, if no. anybody wants to just skip it, uh, skip ahead for uh, part two. I understand. So recently this week, I watched Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl. Which let me tell you, first off, sidebar. I love the f- first thing I love about this series is that they did not hold any punches when it came to semicolon secondary title. I mean, let's look, let's, <laughs> <laughs> like, let's go through this series. So you got, hold on, let's, let's just go, let's go, let's take a long look at the, at the Pirates of the Caribbean series. So you got Curse of the Black Pearl, then you got Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, then you got Pirates of the Caribbean, At World's End, then you got Pirates of the Caribbean, wait, which one's, oh, this was the next one, On Stranger Tides. Then you had Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Uh, Dead Men Tell just, No Tales is the worst. I haven't even seen it's it. It's like, not not even just the movie, but Dead Man Tell No Tales. No, Dead Men, right? Dead. It's men. There's It's, it's yeah. plural. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than one men telling tales. Yeah. It's awful it's still an awful secondary title but they none of them have like one they don't have like two three four right it's just like the it's just pirates yeah that's pretty cool yeah (laughs) and i kind of like that you don't mess around with like pirates the caribbean 2 or something like right like screw that let's just it's dead man tell dead men tell no tales dead man's chest there's a lot of dead dead male characters it seems like in the titles of these yeah give me booty I don't know, I'm excited to to continue my way through revisiting the Pirates of the Caribbean series. I have not seen Dead Men Tell No Tales, so I'm going to be excited for that one. But anyway, so so I revisited The Curse of the Black Pearl, which again, let me just say up front, this movie is fucking awesome. It's a great movie. <laughs> Super fun. 
super super fun like just like head you know it's a little bit over long it's like what is it like two and a half hours almost it's a long movie but it's a fun one i mean i just want to say i want to lament about the times when we could have a super silly blockbuster that its plot is around ghost pirates trying to bring back all the pieces of a cursed Aztec gold and the pirates the, <laughs> the people trying to bring them to justice are played by Johnny Depp who is just vamping it the hell up and then Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley who have both seemed to been, have been stricken from this earth for whatever reason I don't know where they are um I'm not even going to get... That's the plot. That's the plot of the movie. What I... The, my takeaways from Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which I have to... You'd say the entire name every time, is that... For, well, outside of having wonderful secondary titles and being fun, it also has some just... Just straight up... Like, let me tell... Like, there's just not... In blockbuster movies today, there's just not the... The propensity... Propensity? Propensity. To have such wonderful, like, uh, memorable lines. Because you think of, like, now, because every movie, we we, like, every blockbuster we're making now has to be, like, connected in some weird way. And so, like, you watch, like, a Marvel movie, and really the humor, if you really drill down into it, it's not really humor. It's more just, like, like self-referential stuff from, like, three movies ago, which isn't funny. It's just kind of making a comment. And this one has just, like... I mean, so you have, like, the trailer line, which is, you know, you best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Swan, because you're in one. You know, you got that one, which just... Let me tell you, that scene is pretty wonderful because Jeffrey Rush just walking all over the room. He's swashing, swashing his wine. The Kira Knightley is just, like, you know, is, is cowering in fear, and then he just drops that line. And then... And then, really the main part, this is the absolute main reason to watch Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, is Hans freaking Zimmer, man. Because they needle drop some bomb-ass score music. They do. It's, it's, let me tell you. I'm excited for the second one because then they add, like, the Davy Jones Kraken stuff, which is, I mean, it goes pretty hard, but... This one really, like, leans into, like, you got, like, the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. You got all, like, the spooky tunes. It's just, it's 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 good stuff. Like, it's it's a fun, it's a fun-ass time. And I was enjoying, I enjoyed all 143 minutes of it. You have Zoe Saldana is in this movie. I forgot that Zoe Saldana was in this series at all. So that was a nice surprise. Um... Let me see what else we got. Jonathan Price um, was really uh, was really doing some stuff as the uh, my my iPhone thought I was talking to it. Um, Jonathan Price was really doing some stuff as the governor in this one. You got those two those two little silly guys who were like the pirates who were like the comic relief, and you got the guy without the with the one eye and the and the kind of chubbier guy with the with the beard. Like they're fun. Like I don't know. Overall, it's just we need more blockbusters that seem like they're spending so much money and is just gibberish and makes no sense i i think we need like i I was just sitting there watching it and i was like you know 
movies should be nonsense. <laughs> that was my that was my overall takeaway was that movies should be nonsense and Pirates of the Caribbean the Curse of the Black Pearl is peak nonsense and I loved every it's it's a, and quite honestly it's not even just like nonsense in the sense of that like it's just it's a stupid movie. It's not stupid at all. Like the even like the action sequences in, in this are like pretty well choreographed so they look it's not Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom fighting. I mean, I know that. I'm not that dumb, but it still like it gives the appearance of them and it kind of has like this uh this uh this kind of like you know tangibleness that it's like oh yeah like these are two people fighting it's not two computers you know that are fighting each other like we 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 see now and so it's just you know i i'm I'm excited to take a nice journey they got all the pirates of the caribbean on disney plus so while everybody's on disney plus clicking on hamilton for the eighth time i'm like oh pirates of the caribbean franchise and let me say let me go through my thought process real quickly I was almost going to watch the Brendan Fraser Mummy series, which is on the new NBC streaming uh, service, Peacock, which is just objectively funny. It's just an objectively funny name. Yeah, it's great. And so I was going to watch that, but then I was like, you know, why mess with the the poser when you can go for the player? And... uh, decide to hop over to Disney Plus and watch. So, at some point this week, I will be watching Dead Man's Chest and uh, At World's End, which I'm, let me, I can't explain to you how excited I am to watch At World's End, because even when that movie came out, it was like a nonsense like typhoon and so i'm so excited to watch that because it like they go to singapore and then there's like a there's an actual like typhoon and then like there's a giant and they go to more than just singapore they go to like hell don't they <laughs> yeah then they go and they have to like get get johnny depp jack sparrow out of like pirate hell like i'm so excited for that like like i mean like come on like what is that i love every second of that that's amazing we you know I'm sorry. Movies are over. You know. I was gonna say I was. I'll be curious to see how you feel about nonsense. Uh, two more movies in. I remember them getting increasingly serious, which makes the nonsense lots less fun. No, this. I haven't seen them since they came out. No, so this maybe, is the the I'm Curse of the Black Pearl is easily the best one because it kind of it didn't really know what it had. And it just rolled with it, and I think. Now, the second and third one I remember being still fun. I think once Gore Verbinski, the director, left and they started just getting random people because Johnny Depp needed to pay his legal fees for beating up people, um, it kind of got it kind of got worse. But now, don't worry, they got a they got a spinoff happening with Margot Robbie. So uh, that'll be something. Yeah, that'll be something. I don't, you know, again, whatever. I, I just just pop on that old Disney Plus. Get in, get in Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Remember the days when Orlando Bloom used to be on, you know, TV screens nationwide. I don't know where. Is he still? He's, I mean, he's still alive, but like, what's he doing? I, I remember he had like. He just he was, married he Katy ba- Perry. He's I was like, gonna say. I remember he was banging Katy Perry bad. at one point. I think they're having um, a baby or something. The dude was oh, in. For- he was in Pirates of the Caribbean and Lord of the Rings. Like the guy doesn't have to be in anything else ever again. <laughs> <laughs> he I mean, would be that's just true. like raking it in forever. I mean, and to be fair, like most of the people from those movies have also kept like relatively low profiles too. Like, when's the last time we saw Sean a- yeah. Aston? Right. Like, and I mean, you know. he was in Stranger he Things. He was in what's it? He was in Stranger Things. Oh, yeah, because people yeah, were like, oh, it's Sean Aston. You know, so. Um, 
And he was in um that was a bad person <laughs> then. Yeah. But other people. <laughs> but yeah, I, no, I would say like Jordan uh, has like recently ish. He like went back and watched all the Pirates movies, and also was just like crazy about them whenever he watched them again. And I remember like the first one being really, 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 really good and a lot of fun, and uh, like being able to kind of weave in and out of like really dark and also really fun, and just doing it just fine. But to to Michael's point, I. I specifically remember jordan talking about the the quality taking like a pretty harsh nosedive like after a certain point let me tell you though that hans zimmer is going to show up with that davy jones theme <laughs> and it's going to be that da 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 like that shit i'm going to be like hell yeah <laughs> it was a very vocal movie watching experience when i was watching this like there was a lot of just like like getting up and clapping and yelling and stuff <laughs> no i wasn't doing that i was just like there was a lot of oh yeah and then like here he goes <laughs> which i want to just i want to be up front like is easily the best like let me just be honest that's the best movie watching experience is when you sit there with and you're like oh yeah here it go like you sound like you're a like an audience for a sitcom like a like a background for a sitcom like i love it so i'll i'll, I'll be sure to update the cinematary listeners with uh the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise as I work my I mean I'm going to be watching at least two of them between now and the next episode so it's happening so Pirates of the Caribbean The Curse of Black Pearl number one it's on Disney Plus it's also if you're you know Michael's kind of person it's probably you can get it from Netflix DVDs or whatever so it's it's available that way (laughs) so actually funny story um, so my parents had Netflix DVD like way back when I think they still do, but um, I remember when they were first unrolling their streaming service, which originally was packaged free with the DVD service, and I remember specifically getting Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End through the DVD, but through the mail, as sometimes happens, the DVD had broke, Um, and we were like, wow, what are we going to do? And then we discovered that it was actually streaming on Netflix, and so um, I watched uh, the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie uh, it was my first Netflix streaming experience. This, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you got to share that memory with us and we got to be a part of your life. Yeah, it was, you know. You you, you know, if... I was going to say, if you can gripe like an old man about like blockbusters these days, then I can certainly like reminisce as an old man looking back on no, that you're good. Netflix streaming first began. And it was pure and it wasn't, you know... The kissing booth part five or whatever did you see that the, this is this is complete um, we'll, we'll end it we'll end the episode like or in the part in five seconds but did you see that the kissing <laughs> the whole that the kissing booth two is two and a half hours long almost who the hell is gonna watch that that's absurd what is kissing booth is this a movie <laughs> I think it's, it's on, on netflix, netflix but it's like right? two hours and 20 minutes it's a teen coming is of it? age comedy <laughs> Oh, that's a, that's a lot, lot of kissing. kissing. Two of them. I haven't even heard of a directed first. by Judd Apatow, probably. Yeah. Anyway, all right. I'll I'll I'll, I'll wrap up the part. All right. Here we go. Um, we're gonna be talking about Tokyo Drifter, and uh, we're gonna all sing our own theme song after this. Hello, cinema. 
Cemetery listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Well, now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our Film Theory and Chill series, where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week, so please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, and the last two reviews that we've written at Cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening, and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. And we are back with part two of episode 310 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1966's Tokyo Drifter. Directed by Seijan uh, Suzuki from a script by Kohan Kawuchi. The film stars Tetsuya Watari, uh, Ryuji Kita, Tamio Ko- <laughs> Kawaji, and Chiko Matsubara. After Yakuza boss Kurata dissolves his own criminal empire, a rival kingpin offers a position to Kurata's top operative, Tetsuya Phoenix Tetsu Hondo. Phoenix Tetsu is his, is his nice nickname. When the fearless, fearlessly loyal Tetsu declines, Otsuka taps unstoppable Tetsu... Tatsuzo the Viper, a ruthless gun for hire, to assassinate him. As the Viper trails his target through the countryside, the agile Phoenix Tetsu grows concerned that one of his former associates has betrayed him. 
Bosses at the production company Nikatsu had been warning Suzuki to t- tone down his bizarre visual style for years and drastically reduce Tokyo Drifter's budget in hopes of getting the results. This had the opposite effect in that Suzuki and art director Takeo Kimura uh, pushed themselves to new heights of surrealism and absurdity. The studio's next move was to impose the further restriction of filming in black and white on his next two films, which again Suzuki met with even greater bizarreness, culminating in his dismissal from in his dismissal for incomprehensibility. Uh, which sidebar that's an amazing way to like like the fact that they're like listen you need to just tamp it down a little bit like it's getting a little too much and he was like no and then the fact that they just kept letting him make movies like uh, like in another note he he made 40 movies over 12 years and he just kept you know ignoring their like i love that I, i already love this guy like that's the best way to do things anyway because of budget limitations, Suzuki had to cut connecting shots out of many fights, leading to a need for more creative camera work. Various shots of Tokyo were used to establish the setting as the then-contemporary post-1964 Japan. Suzuki drew inspiration from a wide variety of sources in making Tokyo Drifter, including the musical films of the 1950s, pop art, absurdist comedy, and surrealist film. Producer Marty Gross uh, said to the Cornell Sun in 2016 on working with Suzuki, Suzuki is a very pithy man, very direct. He's not impatient, but he prefers to keep his answers simple. For example, we asked Suzuki about the color choices in Tokyo Drifter, why one scene's in black and white while the rest of the movie's in such vivid color, and Suzuki replied, quote, I thought the audiences would like to see a movie in color. For story, for story of a prostitute, we asked him why he made that film after Gate, Gate of Flesh, and he said simply, quote, that film was an adaptation, and Nikatsu gave me the book and said this is the next one. Criterion wants filmmakers to talk about the philosophy behind their work, and Suzuki would always skirt around that in such a way that you can't ask the question again. It's not that he's necessarily modest. I think he knows his place in film history. He's a professional and not much willing to talk film aesthetics. Akira Kurosawa is very much the same way in his interviews. Uh, Again, after 40 movies in 12 years with Nikatsu, the company finally fired Suzuki, citing citing that he made incomprehensible films and, quote, understood only by an exclusive audience. Uh, (laughs) And that was the reason why they fired him. Um, The move was protested by Japanese students and film critics, but was ultimately unsuccessful, and he did not make another movie for nine years. Um, Yeah, so on that note, let's talk a little bit about Tokyo Drifter. Uh, Jessica, I'm going to kick it off with you because I know you're a, a, a big fan of this movie, and I think we're, we're the one who included it on the list. So, Yes, I've been trying to get people to watch this film for a couple of years now. Um, this is my second watch of it. I own a copy of it, um, gifted to me by Dylan Moore. So shout out to Dylan. Thank you for my Tokyo Drifter copy. Um, yeah, I, I love the film because like, it is so stylistic and so fun. Like, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, I had no idea that this film would be such a good time. Like, you have this, like, very upbeat, like, jazzy score. You have um, these crazy characters, like, they have crazy nicknames, and they're wearing, like, very cool outfits. The set design is nuts. Like the bar, the club that the um, 
like female character like sings in like looks amazing the lighting the colors like everything in this film is great like it's so stylistic and so fun to watch but like I also I also feel like it's doing a really interesting thing with the lone wolf narrative so like Tetsu is supposed to be a part of this like he's in a disbanded yakuza gang and he's following um what's the karada karada mm-hmm. and he has like this loyalty to karada that he even though they're disbanded like he can't shake it he can't get rid of it and like the whole rest of the film is him you know trying to stay loyal to karada even though he technically doesn't have to and he has like all of the shenanigans like with the other yakuza gang is like you know is is a part of the main plot but it's also to me just kind of like a side thing that really drives home the point of i think like what uh suzuki is trying to say with this film which is that like it's not really so much important to have this like sense of duty towards this like patriarchal figure as it is to have it towards yourself or to other people. Like, I think he does this really cool thing with the character Shooting Star, which has an amazing nickname, by the way, and is also hilarious, like, in the film because he just trips people. <laughs> like, his way of, of fighting people is with, like, just karate chopping them and, like, tripping them, which is amazing. Um, but, like, in the film, uh, Shooting Star tells uh, Tetsu, he says, like, you know, I've done, like, I'm doing the lone wolf thing and, like, you don't have to have this sense of duty to to Karada because he's going to disappoint you because that's what people do. But it's, like, even though Shooting Star says that, like, he's the only person in the film who goes out of his way to help Tetsu for no reason. Like, he doesn't even have to. Like, in the film, um, Tatsu is about to shoot Tetsu and shooting star like places his back in front of the gun to prevent it from happening. And like whenever Tetsu gets shot in the arm, shooting star is the one who like swoops in and kind of like takes care of him. So it's like, like doing this thing of, you know, you don't have to have this sense of duty towards this like higher patriarchal patriarchal figure, but instead you can have like the sense of duty towards other people, towards your friends, towards yourself. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Cam, what about you? Uh, no, I, I also really liked it a lot. Uh, I thought that it was really... Um, so, like, it's one of those movies where you... Uh, I feel like the movie almost kind of, like, will sort of maybe even, like, punish you for trying to pay too close of attention of what's going on, like, beat for beat, like, with the plot. Uh, it's very, like it's like kind of needlessly convoluted at the very beginning and drops you right in the middle of all this. And you're getting all these names and buildings and people and all this type of stuff. And because of the way that it's filmed, like you mentioned, like taking out connecting shots and stuff like that. uh, It it can be like very confusing at the beginning of like, what is even really happening. Uh, But I think sometimes like, like I have learned in some movies that sometimes like, you just kind of like ride with the movie and let it kind of do its thing. And you'll like, I I got onto the wavelength of it pretty quickly. Like 
with only catching basically like the very basic of like what exactly was happening. Uh, and uh, it was able to carry me through the movie like just fine. And like, I, I feel like uh, not only is it, obviously it's very like colorful and stylish and stuff like that, as everybody has mentioned, but it is like actually like super funny. <laughs> and like, uh, as, as Jessica mentioned, there's like a guy who just like, it comes out from behind trees and like trips people <laughs> like when they're when they're running past and like that's like that's like how he's introduced into the movie but like in particular there's the scene where they there's kind of like this massive bar fight that happens uh and it devolves into just this this like insanity to the point where like it is like it almost seems like it's like making fun of western movies because they're in like a they're they're in like a a bar that's like themed like a saloon, right? Like it has the big swinging doors and stuff. And like the fight is so insane that like it literally everyone in the building is like picking stuff up and throwing it at each other and like the go-go dancers are like down in the pit just like fighting people and like you know, people are like bumping into each other and hugging and then like, you know, other it'll just like cut to two characters who you don't even know who they are. And they're just like smashing each other with chairs and stuff like that. And then at the end of it, they kind of like everybody sort of just gets like thrown out through the swinging doors and they land all on top of each other in the street while the, you know, shooting star kind of like dusts his hands off like, haha, job well done, friends or whatever. And it's like hilarious, like the way that the scene unfolds is really, really funny. Uh, and I think that like another thing that I was reading about the movie that I thought was really interesting is like. I don't really know too much about like uh, movies that like Japanese movies about, you know, gangsters and Yakuza and stuff like that. But like, apparently this is like sort of only just kind of like using that as a vehicle to do the thing that Suzuki was wanting to do. And I think that like the remnants and like send ups to the genre are kind of like hanging around in the movie that don't maybe don't necessarily like help it in a, in a specific way, but it also seems like it's almost like, um, it's like bringing these things up out of nowhere and it kind of like has some like whiplash for some of the characters at the, at the very end, you know, Jessica was talking about this whole like lone wolf thing that Tetsu keeps talking about. And he like, you know, has gone through all this stuff to get back to some of his friends and like, a, you know, a lover that he has back in Tokyo. And then like, after doing all of that, he's just like, sorry, I don't need a lover and just like leaves her there and walks away. And it's kind of silly, like in the context of the movie, but I think that it's sort of just like remnants of the fact that this is sort of like riffing on the Yakuza thing, you know, while it's also sort of playing into it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael, what about you? I am one of those people who like had literally no clue what was going on for most of it. And um, from talking with uh, other people, including Jessica, just now before we hit record um it part of the problem sounded like i just had really like a terrible copy of the the movie um it was like a really early dvd like 1999 was when it was released and it was like full screen letterboxed um and the subtitles were i guess kind of wonky too i pieced together like for instance like viper tatsu uh which is called tetsu in my copy and so it sounded like there were just two people named tetsu running around which was like Confusing on top of a movie that's already like uh, tangentially, or like is you know the the appeal of the movie is tangential to like following the intricacies of the plot, um, and a plot that's like like you guys have said like needlessly complicated at times. Um, so like, I definitely 
am glad that Jessica, you were talking about what you got out of the narrative because I got like basically zero things out of the narrative um, for a lot of reasons. That said, like as complicated as the narrative is, I also really love how straightforward the movie is in a lot of ways and a lot of it having to do with like the visual effects. So like the characters basically all wear the same clothes the whole time. Like Tetsu wears the same blue suit and that's how you identify him for a lot of the movie. Um, the same thing with um, Shooting Star who has this jacket and like that's how you identify Shooting Star is like he has this like distinctive jacket. And then there's like the, one of the villains, he's just always wearing sunglasses and we always get like extreme clips of the sunglasses um, like snap cuts to his glasses <laughs> like yeah it's yeah. hilarious yeah. and then like the different locations will be color-coded and so there's like the rock club like the the rock and roll club where the villain's lair is and so it's just purple and so every time you see like these purple dancers even if like the rock and roll music isn't playing you're like instantly like okay we're in the villain's lair and then there's like the yellow club uh which is like um, you know, where the, the woman is singing that Jessica was talking about. And like, we get like a lot of, uh, shots in there too. And so like, it's a really complicated movie if you're trying to follow the plot, but on like another level, it's just like extremely simple because it's all basically color coded. And I thought that was so cool and fun. Um, and especially at the end of the movie, when they start draining color from the sets, um, which I don't know if this is true of all the indoor sets that are color coded, but at least the the club, the yellow club seems to be like a completely white set. They were just like splashing like um, lights with colors on them. And that's how they got the color. And so at the end of the movie, they start taking away the colors from um, those sets. And like uh, the people are wearing white suits. And so they're kind of blending into the background and stuff. And um, I don't really have any like complicated ideas or themes from the movie, but like, I just thought what it was doing with color was just so, neat because like I, I feel like a lot of movies like view complexity as um like kind of a um a benefit right you know you want to make things that look extremely complicated uh, and this movie makes a real virtue out of things that are so visually straightforward I mean there's like interesting complicated visual things going on too but a lot of the movie is like making a virtue out of just how straightforward can I make something uh, how much shorthand can I use to communicate an idea and the solution a lot of times is like a single visual flourish will again and again signal the same thing and so you get kind of like almost like a like a it builds its own filmic language out of these really simple signs that i think is neat yeah it uses a lot of like shorthand stuff too where like uh there's a certain point where um tatsu is chasing tetsu through the snow right and like they're both wearing these jackets and they they like look very similar like wearing these overcoats over their suits, but Tetsu is wearing like white gloves and Tatsu is wearing black gloves, right? So it's like like the white hat, black hat, cowboy thing almost, you know? And then uh, like uh, another thing is like um, during like all of the confusing stuff that can happen sometimes like with the with like fighting or action or whatever, there's like a scene early on where uh, some guy kind of like... Um, is about to shoot someone and Tetsu shoots him instead. And like the guy is in front of, you know, what, what is, it's like a glass. He's like in front of a window and then like the window is just white behind it. But when the guy gets shot, it just like flushes with red. Like, it's just like the whole background turns red. And so it's like an automatic, like, yeah, I guess that guy's dead, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that that's a really good point too. Like there's lots of, lots of like really easy, like shorthands being used to like, 
simplify things in the movie or like uh or kind of like revel in the simplicity of it like you mentioned the whole thing about people wearing things that are like super um like uh indicative of who they are or whatever and like you mentioned that the shooting star guy wears a green jacket and like we recognize him because he's wearing a green jacket but not only that but like other characters recognize him because he's wearing a green jacket like Yeah, there's a scene late in the movie where uh, Shooting Star's not even there in the shot, but his jacket is laying somewhere, and they pick him up, and they're like, Shooting Star must be here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Shooting Star's here, because here's his green jacket. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is just like a shitty, like, windbreaker. (laughs) It's just so good. (laughs) I was, one of the things that I was thinking, I watched this with Andrew, and we were kind of talking about this during the movie, is we were curious, like, um like how much the French new wave or specifically like something like breathless or like, you know, those kind of like genre pastiche, like deconstructions that like Godard was doing would have made their way to Japan. Cause it like in some ways is like heavily reminiscent of that where you have this extremely arch version of like an established genre. That's like, it's, it's, it's got this veneer of like, you know, hyper cool, like hyper, like uh signified posture to it that like, I mean, later on, like, Tarantino would kind of make his career off of that. But, like, you know, the French New Wave has that kind of thing, too, where, they're, you know, um, you take a genre and you you reduce it to its component parts and make it, like, you know, kind of visually arresting. And um, I, I was just, you know, that was something, too, like, that this is, like, relatively, like, at the same time as, as when that stuff was going on. And it feels, like, of that movement in the West, even, I don't know if it was just, like, you know, parallel evolution or if there was a real cross pollination there. But uh, that's something that came to mind too, as I was watching it. Yeah. I mean, that is like a good thing. Like it's interesting because like uh, there's also like all the stuff when, when, when they're like in a shootout, it's not just like people standing around shooting guns, right? They're like striking these weird poses and stuff. Uh, And it's all like very, um, it's very like, oh, you, I don't know. It's like striking visually, I guess. And I mean, well, and it's also like, it's all, it's as if like they know that they're in a movie, so they have to strike the cool pose. Yeah, like yeah. There's a, there's a certain like self awareness to it. It's where they're aware that what they're doing is cool. And so they're playing up the cool in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it, like going so far as to like sing their own theme songs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's like, it's a movie that's that's constantly pretty self-aware because, I mean, again, at one point, the main character, after we've heard his theme song kind of be played over nine, uh, non-diegetically, and then even other people, like, in the movie humming it, um, he finally, he finally sings it himself. Um, but there's like a, I think it has like this self-aware quality where it's, I, I think kind of in 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 conjunction with what you're saying, like they they're aware. It's more like they're aware of like like their coolness rather than they're aware of like a movie. And so, um, like I felt like Tetsu is constantly aware of like uh, <laughs> just the way he's presented. Um, not even you know within with no knowledge that like it's 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 a narrative, but just this is kind of the way he he goes about uh you know just his day in general. And that's kind of, there's something kind of intoxicating about that. Just like watching him just kind of, uh, you know, move around, you know, around the, the story. It kind of reminds me a lot of, um, 
I saw when I was reading it, it seemed like Suzuki was really um, inspired by a lot of westerns, and so he kind of just has like this this screen chewing personality where he can kind of just walk around like he's you know John Wayne or something and just eat up the screen just through his his kind of his personality uh, without having to say anything. My favorite, like you mentioned him singing the theme song, uh, his own theme song, which is like hilarious, kind of like how when you're a kid and you're like playing in Star Wars, like you're playing like you're in Star Wars or something, you might imagine like the the Force theme or something like happening while you play. But there's this one part later in the movie where Tetsu has been like knocked down or shot or something and they're like, is he dead? And then in a normal movie, we might have gotten like his light motif or something play in the score to like signal that no, he's coming back. But in this movie, he just starts whistling his own theme to yeah. signal that he's not <laughs> he, dead. He whistles <laughs> it so himself. Funny. He's just laying on. That is after the big stupid brawl, like mm-hmm. which is the best part of the movie. It's just laying there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'll I I whistle my own song to show you that I'm not dead. <laughs> I know you're in there with a gun and you want to kill me, but this really needs to be done. I have to whistle this." And then you, like, as the audience member, were like, "Oh hell yeah, Tetsu's <laughs> yeah. alive!" Yeah. Like this hero, like that is what he's being poised as. Well, like, can we just talk about how handsome this guy is? <laughs> like, the smolder, like, in the close-ups, like, his skin is glowing. And the smolder that he just gives the camera is crazy. <laughs> and, like, he, uh, like, obviously there's this coolness factor to it. But we can't, we can't not talk about how rude he is to Chiharu <laughs> because she is in love with this guy and at one point in the film they go on this date and she's a singer at this club and they go on this date and she asks him if he wants to come up for tea and he's like oh yeah sure and then closes the door and just kind of waves at her and is like (laughs) yeah never mind bye-bye which is super rude he's so mean to her also there's a part where He's on a train and she's on another train and she reaches for his hand because she sees him like out the window and she reaches for him and he just doesn't say anything and pretends like he doesn't see her. So she gets off the train and then chases the train that he's on and he just doesn't do anything. He closes his eyes and goes to sleep. <laughs> he's like, nah. He closes his eyes and goes to sleep. But also later in the movie, he also throws a gun and then catches it himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like what a ladies man yeah but also poor chaharu yeah. like well that kind of gets caught up in the thing that i was talking about where like i don't know how well established the like yakuza genre conventions were at the time this movie is made because i just like don't know enough about it but if they were like fairly established that then i would see that as like so over the top and like dismissive of her that it is like literally like calling attention to how bad it is but like i don't i don't know enough about it to say because it it is very like it's so bad that it's like it like it's like glaringly bad like to the point where it'd be like funny almost because he's just like at every turn she's like i love you and he's like okay (laughs) i think one of the saddest moments in the film is her singing the song that's about like I am so sad, like tears are streaming down my face. I am a pool of sadness. Mm-hmm. So, like in that respect, like I 
almost feel like we are supposed to be sympathetic to her yeah. because the camera always lingers on her when she's crying and she's like yeah. in this intense pain because this guy that she's in love with is just so dismissive of her. I'm pretty sure at the end, whenever he's like, I don't need a woman, I need to walk my path alone. And he just like does the whole like, I must go, my planet needs me thing and just like walks out <laughs> the back door. Uh, like the whole time, I'm pretty sure the camera is like on her and like you're just kind of seeing his back. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. It, it like, I don't know. I don't know what it's doing with that. But if, if, if it was a well-established thing at that point, I would be like, I would immediately say like, yes, that's what they're doing. But I don't know enough about the genre to say. The one thing I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, is I think Jessica mentioned it, it mentioned it at the top, but um the lighting in this, the lighting and just the the art design and set design of this movie is just really striking. Um, and it's something I was thinking about, just like how um, it, it had to have been something that, of course, it influenced somebody like Tarantino, um, just overall. But also, you know, even things that kind of have like taken this kind of neon aesthetic, like something like a John Wick or. Um, atomic blonde or something in that of that nature where it it really like leans into like this this kind of almost aesthetic uh you know fascination and it's kind of funny that suzuki the the, the director uh has literally no interest in in talking about any of that it was just more like this seemed fun so we did it um but at the same time it's something that kind of like in, in terms of the narrative it like it, it's not it doesn't feel realistic. It kind of adds like this almost like dreamlike ethereal element to it. Um, but it also wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same movie without it. Yeah. I, that's something that I felt about the movie too. And that kind of like what I was saying about like feeling like I got on its wavelength re- relatively quickly is I kind of was just like, this thing just feels very dreamy, you know, even, even like the very beginning of it when it's in that like super overexposed black and white. And it's like, everything is so like harshly like, um, like contrasted and stuff, or I guess I don't know if contrast is the right word, but it's like very stark white, very dark blacks, and like the whole that whole setup, uh, and like everything that follows directly after. I was kind of like felt like I was sort of like in a in this like washing machine sort of, and was like, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's kind of like dizzying and dreamlike in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, Michael, Jessica, any any additional thoughts? I mean, what did you, what did you make on the um, just kind of how this this whole movie is designed in terms of like the set and the and the art design? I mean, I I already talked about the the colors, which I thought um, were really cool. Um, I I also think that like there's an like we've already talked about the humor in the movie, but there's like a comedy in like some of the sets as well, like the, the rock club, like, I don't know, there's something really funny about like every time that there's an establishing shot in their club, like the music is indistinguishable from what they were dancing to before. And they're just like sitting there dancing as if they've just been dancing, like literally the whole movie. Um, and there's like a few other things like that where it like, because of the dreaminess, it like heightens the, like, there's just something like really funny and, and silly about it um, that I that I really dig too, and not in like a particularly deep way. I just thought it was like silly and funny. 
Well, there's there's the dance club sequence when I think it's Tetsu who shows up and like he hears the music or he hears the music over the phone. And he's like, so and so is playing tonight, and it's just like this basic club music, and it's just like, do mm, do you know, it's just like the most basic stuff. And it's like, oh, so and so is playing tonight. Like that jogged his memory uh, of where they're at. Um, it is. A, it's a very funny movie. It, it's it's or or at least it's very silly. Um, you know, it kind of has uh, I went, it, it kind of almost has like this old, like this old Hollywood comedy, um, th- you know, kind of degree to it. You know, it's, it's, it's almost just kind of to almost tossing stuff over the shoulder and just kind of, um, you know, not really like drilling down on it, but just kind of pointing out like, this is, this is kind of absurd and then moving on, um, which is kind of charming about it. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, I I kind of picked up on the John Wick connection as I was uh, watching the movie too. Like, even like narratively, like it feels like you know this idea that there's just like a whole like you know criminal underworld where like they can kind of talk to each other in these heightened terms, and then the next scene they're like shooting at each other and like that that sort of thing. But like, I I feel like a big difference between this movie and like John Wick, which I like the John Wick movies, but like those are movies that I think like. And this, I don't mean this negatively, but there, there's a pretension to those movies where they're like, you know, trying to be something that is like beyond their genre or maybe even trying to be like the epitome of their genre or something like that. And I think like this movie has like very much the feel of someone who just likes making movies, which is not the feel I get from John Wick movies. Like the John Wick movies is someone who's like really invested in like this character with the mythology and all that. And then this movie is just like, um, I just thought this was fun. Like, I'm just, there, there's a goofing around <laughs> with my pals uh, vibe to this movie that feels very, like, like you said, like old Hollywood, or like, not just old Hollywood, but the kind of sensibility that feels more like, like, like Adam Sandler, or like people who you typically associate with comedy, like that sensibility seems to be there, where there's like an experimental not like avant-garde, but like, they're just like, I wonder what happens if this will happen, if we do this and like, Oh, that was cool. We'll roll it in the film. Like that kind of sensibility, um, that feels very different from like what you normally get from like generally crime movies and like camera. I'm not super familiar with the Yakuza movie, but, um, in general, crime movies have a certain pretension or seriousness to them that this movie completely lacks. And I, that's delightful. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the kind of, person they always they always link to this is tarantino who is incredibly aware of like the type of movie that he's making and it seems very meticulous so that even though i enjoy a lot of them it's it's it doesn't really have you know the feeling that you're describing where it's just like i mean the 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 dude made 40 movies for over 12 years and they finally fired him because they kept having to like make the budget smaller so that he would stop being weird and he was like i'm not gonna stop being weird and i quite honestly over the course of this conversation i've come to love him even more because i'm like that's the best way to go about life yeah Um, there's like nothing in a single tarantino movie that feels off the cuff like it's all really heavily considered whereas like most of this movie feels off the cuff yeah and it's the same way with like a john wick movie and again i like those as uh, as well but everything feels very it does it feels very focused and um you know i don't know it's it's almost like is there is 
does, does anybody involved in this like have a joy like enjoy making movies or is it just like what's what, what's going on here because it seems like Suzuki and, and the and the folks over with Tokyo Drifter are just having a hell of a time right now they got no money but they got some cool lighting and they got some silliness so um no I just as a kind of closing thought I really enjoyed it I thought I thought I'm, I'm excited to kind of revisit it knowing more kind of the wavelength that you need to get on to to watch it but I saw a couple people who like the people I, I saw some who were like this felt like three hours and I could see that because it kind of just does it is a meandering movie but it's a nice it's kind of a fun it's an enjoyable meandering movie and one that I, I'll probably go back to at some point it's got uh, a drift it, you know you got a drift, Drifter's baby. It's not going to be focused. <laughs> I don't understand how someone could be like, oh, this is just dragging on. Like, yeah. there's snap zooms <laughs> on a villain's, like, sunglasses. Come on. It's yeah, also like, only, like, 80, 80 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it? like, it's like a cool, it's a cool 80 minutes yeah. or something. <laughs> like, insane. Insane that he did all of those things in that short amount of time. Also, I think that Tarantino films are very mean-spirited, and this film is not in any way. <laughs> no. Like, even, even when people are shooting at each other <laughs> and fighting each other, like, they still look like they're having a good time. Like, <laughs> they don't hurt you. They're like, yeah, gotta do, you gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta drift sometimes. You gotta drift. Absolutely. Um all right. Well, I think that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on uh, Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we put all the movies that we talked about in this episode next week. Um, oh, and Patreon, patreon.com slash cinematary. Um, we got a new film theory and chill that went up uh, earlier this week. We talked a lot about video games and movies and. Uh, you can hear a, a, a all the stuff happening in Andrew's life, which uh, I will I'll, I'll say. I mean, I feel for him. It's not super chill for the chill portion, but uh, it's still fun. We have a good time. We talk about Taylor Swift to end it, so you know we there's that if if that's you know of of any appeal to anybody. Um, Cam, you're here, so I'm not saying your name. Uh, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Harry Eskin, Hell Yeah Small World, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Pedro Serafin, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur, uh, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rhea Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1970s Husbands. Um, but we're getting close. We got uh, four more left, so if you have not caught up with our young critics watch old movie series we got them all backlogged on cinematary.com so check it out um we got some nice reviews we have reviews of bamboozled the brown bunny and bloodshot all b named movies um i don't know if that's like a new series for july that andrew was running with (laughs) but uh that's how it that's how it went i guess that's strange anyway thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week